0: I'm here for an hour before I someone know. did something about
1: it. Yeah, I just assume everyone's got a request form unless
2: they
0: tell <laughs> Uh So really? I'll
2: just. Um it's the twentieth of March, and I'm speaking into my phone outside a COVID nineteen testing centre in the inner western suburbs of Sydney. I'm actually not here for the story, but I'm here because I have just been tested. My
1: name is. How are you today? I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. You're busy? <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs>
2: okay. Your name, date of us? Amanda Sharon Patterson. I have um, some symptoms. This sort of breathless cough. And one of my close family members was diagnosed with COVID a few days ago.
3: Okay. I'm going to try the swab
1: in this one, owning your throat. Uh-huh. But this one, going to your throat first and then go to the your... No. Ah. Uh. Yes. Okay. Oh, oh my god. <laughs> All good. Wow. Okay, another one.
2: Oh shit! <laughs> yay. It's hard to really take in what's going on. Uh, surreal doesn't give this moment justice. Even the cliches aren't working because they rely on something being previously familiar. You know, we can't really refer back to that other time where there was a run on toilet paper in Australia, for instance.
1: Okay, you can wash your hands if you need. Thank you so much. Welcome. Yeah, you're doing a good job.
2: (laughs) (laughs) We are in uncharted territory. This is not something in anyone's living memory. We're isolated in our homes. Hundreds of thousands of us are sick And as of today, tens of thousands of us have died. It's scary. Our economy is in freefall. People are losing their jobs. People can't afford rent. There isn't enough food at the shops. It's a crisis. Today I'm in Sydney, Australia, reporting about the global pandemic. But we aren't here today to tell a story about crisis. Instead, we were reporting on three stories of hope, tales of how three different types of changemakers are making a difference at such a difficult time. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. We produce content about social change with the aim of helping all of us better understand what works and what doesn't. Our Changemaker story episodes, like this one, are stories of change. We also produce Changemaker chats, which interview individuals that make change. Changemaker's podcast is supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. So we're in a pandemic. Where do you find hope in a moment like this? My first thought was, we've had pandemics before, right? And the human race made it through. Surely there are some inspiring lessons from the past that we can lean on in our hour of need. So I spoke with Dr. Claire Hooker, who is a senior lecturer with Sydney Health Ethics at the University of Sydney. She researches how society responds to infectious diseases. I thought she might be able to make me feel better. The overwhelming narrative of most um, epidemic or
4: pandemic outbreaks has been one uh, that reveals just how badly societies are fractured. They reveal how poorly we treat those who are least advantaged and most vulnerable in our societies. Oh, Previous outbreaks and pandemics have been very notable for the swift capacity to place blame or identify particular social groups and as a result to see um, often extremely brutal treatment of whatever the stigmatised social group happens to be.
2: Oh no, this is not what I was hoping for.
4: The most um, vivid examples probably come from bubonic plague in Germany um, in, and in northern Spain, the disease was associated with, uh, with Jewish people. And in the late 15th century, early 16th century, a number of extremely terrible pogroms occurred where the entire Jewish citizenry were burned alive in their quarters.
2: Right. pogroms. That is not what I was hoping to find. But maybe that was just a long time ago? Were we nicer during modern plagues? Liberal, democratic, capitalist plagues?
4: Through the 19th and 20th century in Australia and Canada and British colonial states, it's often been Chinese people who have been regarded as the harbingers of disease and there is a long history of control of diaspora Chinese populations in disease outbreak contexts in those countries.
2: Look, I'm prepared to call it. Talking to Claire did not make me feel any better. But there is something here. Claire's point is that a virus... While infectious and deadly, isn't the only danger that we have to deal with during a pandemic. It's not a new thing that President Donald Trump keeps calling this virus the Chinese virus.
4: Absolutely, absolutely. In fact, it feels like a very almost seamless um, continuation of a a, long-standing long long historical trend.
2: Today's story is about how we can make change under the difficult conditions that this virus has created. But first, we need to understand what we're up against. Professor David Isaacs is a paediatrician and infectious diseases expert at Sydney University.
5: Why did SARS not become a pandemic and just became an epidemic? Remember, SARS was in 2003. And the answer seems to be that if you got sick with SARS, You weren't maximally spreading the virus until you really got quite unwell, several days into the illness. Um, So it was quite easy to identify people who were really quite sick. The difficulty with the novel coronavirus, the one that's causing this current pandemic, is that people seem to be infectious, much more infectious, much earlier in the illness. So they've really only got a sniffles or even no symptoms early in the illness, and they're already passing it on to other people. So it's much harder to control. Initially, stopping the spread required countries to react to
2: a threat they couldn't easily see. Countries like Hong Kong, China and Singapore swiftly announced strict social isolation. These strong authoritarian states were prepared to limit movement quickly and their populations obliged, having previously experienced a severe epidemic. Other countries did not act so quickly. But like the pandemics of the past, it's not just about the immediate illness.
5: The most profound effects it's likely to have, I would think, are on long-term mental health and on, um, and on the economy. Those are my big worries. But there's studies showing that if you put people in social isolation because of a pandemic like SARS, that has a profound effect on their mental health both at the time that they're there, but for months or even years afterwards, they are more anxious than people who weren't put in isolation.
2: People are already losing their jobs at a scale similar to the greatest recessions that we have ever had. When crisis usually hits, we turn to each other and hold each other up. But this time, we need to physically isolate to stop the illness. The crisis affects everyone, but those who have the least will be hurt the most. 2020 will be the most pivotal year in our lives. Across the next decade, our health, mobility, welfare, economic strength, our climate and our well-being will all be shaped by how we respond to this moment. So what will happen to us? Is it possible for us to write a new story? Can we be different to the horror stories of pandemics past? As the pandemic began to spread and lockdown policies were initiated, the media told us a lot of negative stories. In Australia, we witnessed the first of the toilet paper wars. In the US, the Second Amendment raised the stakes and we saw an escalation in gun sales and some reported examples of looting were we falling apart at the first hurdle i checked in with claire
4: we know for example that um, that you know witnessing supermarket shelves that are empty will necessarily prompt people to um, to feel that they need to uh, ensure that they themselves don't become exposed by having a lack of access to the goods that they would normally access and so they might buy just a little bit more for themselves. The shelves have been emptied not by people carrying the proverbial much-hyped cartloads of toilet rolls uh, but um, but by people just buying a little extra because they don't really know what to expect.
2: There is a lot of worry across the world right now but we've found three stories that give reason for hope. Our first is from the world of healthcare, the epicentre of the pandemic. We all know the world of healthcare at some level. You go to the local doctor, visit an elderly relative in an aged care facility, or a friend in hospital. It's where some of us have given birth. We might even have had the experience of rushing to the emergency department with our child who has broken their leg, or their hand, or both. Across our lives, we get these tiny glimpses into what it must be like to work in the healthcare system. Dr. Robert Kennedy is a general practitioner in Redfern, in inner city Sydney. He knows the hustle that is the world
0: of healthcare. Well, it's busy. It's always busy. There's a constant sense of busyness. It never feels. It rarely feels quiet. There's always this constant sense of motion among people. If that makes sense.
2: He's describing his practice but the same words easily apply to an emergency room or a
0: hospital ward. There's a lot of frustration with the many bad outcomes and a lot of suffering that you, you do see. Healthcare isn't an easy space, but it is rewarding. It's like you're a tradesman. I'm a tradesman of people. You know, I'm a practical problem solver. And especially in GP, it's, it's very multi uh, Disciplinary, you know, uh, social work, psychology, just organising the science of medicine. So what happens to that system when you
2: place it under pressure, under more pressure than modern medical science has ever experienced?
5: In hospitals, um, adult hospitals are already starting to see get a very high workload compared with normal the major thing i can see is a lot of panic from different parts of the hospital who were themselves scared
2: the fear is multidimensional. the obvious worry is can the hospital cope with the onslaught of patients but there is also concern about the challenge of treating such a contagious virus
5: medical staff do not want to get infected They don't want to get infected not only for their own sake, but because if I get infected, that means that everyone that's been in contact with me in the days before I got sick has to self-isolate. And so there are lots of measures in place um, to prevent the spread, and that involves wearing personal protective equipment, PPE, we call it. You can imagine the difficulties, and there's a limited amount of PPE. So we're talking about scarce resources as well.
2: The local doctor's surgery has had to change too.
0: I'm busier because my work is split into two arms. One is managing the pandemic side of things, which has a range of manifestations, and the other is the fact that everything else goes on anyway. There's a lot of anxiety. Doctors have, have had to assume the roles of giving instructions authoritatively rather than a, a cooperative, purely cooperative, and everything is, you know just proceeds as normal.
2: Anxiety isn't frequently associated with moments of creative breakthrough, but this moment isn't only filled with anxiety. Practical people, like tradespeople, are problem solvers. And delivering healthcare under difficult circumstances presents plenty of problems that need to be overcome. Tell me what you see. Is there any signs of sort of hope in this dark time?
0: I think it's very 50-50. I mean, sometimes I see, even in myself, I see wow this is actually me stepping up to a situation i'm trying to do things right maybe i should do this more often you know instead of just going with the flow of of you know you, you look at everyday practice and you think well, were we really good enough before even you know and you reflect maybe this stepping up is actually a, a model for stepping up generally um and sometimes I see we see a lot of open communication among doctors that normal, you know, free distribution of information and really active sharing. And there's also camaraderie in the corridors. Definitely all of that. But as a systemic, as a systemic thing, I'm, I'm I'm not really seeing it. I feel it's a little bit. Might be just the GP world. We're a little bit all our own little ships in the sea. You know, uh, I don't know whether there's a lot of. Um, It's coming, if if there's anything, it's coming from an extremely local level up.
2: Scientists researching the virus are also finding new ways of collaborating. On the 1st of April, the New York Times published an article observing a radical change in approach. Instead of the traditional practice where academics keep their work secret, hoarding data and focusing on publishing findings in academic papers – Findings are now being shared on global conference calls as quickly as they are discovered. It's not about owning the finding, but working together to get a vaccine as fast as possible. The collaboration is not just between professional medical staff.
0: The non-medical staff are doing fantastic jobs and as far as we can get them to, and that's really pulling together, like the level of engagement by our administrative and um, nursing and assistant staff is really high. Cleaners are suddenly so important, group collaboration across the disciplines, rather than, yeah, kind of the doctors are just in an ivory tower. That's actually something I feel.
2: But it's not perfect yet. Robert argues the crisis also lays bare the weaknesses of our health system. As general practitioners see more clearly than most, a strong health system not only needs to think about and fund specific diseases like COVID-19, but it sees the social context in which people get it. Simply providing financial stimulus to an imperfect system doesn't necessarily fix the system.
0: And yes, there's an injection directly around COVID. Is there an injection? Are we feeling an injection to to manage the social problem, I'm not sure. I need resources for my old patients, my sick patients, my mental health patients.
2: What Robert is saying is a spectacular provocation to all those suggesting that we need to inject extra money into the healthcare system. What kind of healthcare system do we need to build beyond this crisis?
0: There could be really great reforms in the health system because simply by the shock that's gone through the health system, have trouble for seeing as an outcome of this, there's a massive injection into aged healthcare. You know, I, I can imagine that there's an outcome of this is a massive injection of into, you know, hysterical pandemic management. We need to make decisions based on non emergency, based in a non emergent state of mind, we need to make decisions for a not emergency using what we learn from an emergency.
2: Our second story is about how mutual aid can be a potent tool in this crisis. But it starts not with the current pandemic, but with another crisis, a flood, several years before. But first, some context. Basic help and support, whether for kids, older people, people with disabilities, or other needs, used to be provided by the state. But through the 1990s and 2000s, those comprehensive programs were rolled back and contracted out to community organisations that had fewer resources to provide the same services. And these have all been wound back to such an extraordinary extent. Yet society is an innovative organism. As the state retreated, new social networks formed.
3: I think that normally mutual aid and volunteerism and bartering and exchange and black markets always exist. But they are often invisible and they're not necessarily recognised because they become very normal in people's lives. And those processes run in parallel to institutional support services, um, you know, which might be run by councils or government agencies or NGOs which um, get tenders and contracts.
2: That was Alex Kelly, a strategic communications consultant and an instigator of a mutual aid group. She argues that local informal support comes into its own in a crisis.
3: Whereas if you're in an immediate environment with people next to you, your neighbours, people on your street, the people in the town next to you, um, you can be there straight away. Um, not necessarily with the same degree of um, planning or crisis responsiveness that an institution might have, but often with life-saving um, immediate response.
2: In Lismore, just south of the Queensland border, a culture of political activism has connected with the practice of mutual aid. You may be familiar with some of these leaders because in Episode 2 of Changemakers, we told the story of how they set up a group called Gasfield Free Northern Rivers in 2010 and stopped gas mining in their community. These people have form. The last few years in Lismore have presented waves of crisis. In 2017 there were severe floods caused by Cyclone Debbie. Ellie Bird is a local councillor in the area and active in many of the social networks, particularly ones that help
1: vulnerable communities. Uh, the entire central business district was inundated, huge amounts, huge residential areas uh, were inundated, you know, more than 2,500 residences plus a really massive number of businesses. Uh, so, in the immediate aftermath of that, um, a social media Facebook group started up, and that group rapidly got eight thousand members.
2: That group then contacted the council, who then asked Ellie to play a role.
1: And so, I called on, on my Gasfield Free networks uh, of people who were really used to organising. Uh, on the ground, and then we, over the next three or four weeks, we uh, essentially coordinated ourselves to support the impacted community um, by coordinating all of the spontaneous volunteers or all of the people that were busily running around trying trying to help.
2: It made a difference that the Gasfield Free Network was already in relationship.
1: Because we were part of a social movement, we were used to taking action without waiting to be given permission to do so. So we were used to, uh, I guess, operating outside of traditional constraints. And so I really feel like that's what gave us the uh, experience and the motivation to just get stuck in and get organised and just start um, really doing the work that needed to be done.
2: It wasn't just that they knew each other. The gasfield free leaders were really conscious about the kind of support they wanted to provide.
1: I mean, even though we were going around and and providing a service um, it it wasn't necessarily perceived as charity because it was really a community response. so we had this interesting um, dynamic where, you know, people who had been impacted themselves, so people who had their, ha- had their own homes flooded or their own properties inundated, um, they would then become volunteers to help other people who had been impacted. So it really was a community-wide response. It's the response of the community to help themselves and to pick themselves up after a disaster rather than to be treated like a charity case.
2: It might seem like semantics, but how you provide help makes the world of difference. Providing help to someone is different from when people work together to help each other. Benevolence can easily feel condescending. Being patted on the head by a professional is different to being supported to stand up on your own two feet by a neighbour. It makes me think back to what Robert described when he talked about the changes he saw in the health system. There is something subtle about how a crisis can change how we build social connections. A crisis can disrupt and disorganise how we negotiate our relationships. When the crisis is so immediate and the stakes are so high, some hierarchies and barriers whether between doctors, nurses and cleaners, or even across an entire community like Lismore, can ease off. Even before the pandemic, Lismore gave us a glimpse of how a crisis can disrupt how a community cares for each other. Fast forward to late 2019 and Australia was witness to another crisis.
0: Bushfires, as the BBC reported. Now, what's happening in Australia is unprecedented. The bushfires have killed 18 people. They've killed close to half a billion animals. They're over twice as big as the Amazon forest fires, and they're exerting extreme political pressure on Prime Minister Scott Morrison.
2: It wasn't just a bushfire crisis, but a political crisis. There was extraordinary anger at political leaders for ignoring the pain people were experiencing. Like in Kabago, when Prime Minister Scott Morrison visited, and received short
0: shrift from the locals.
5: You are out, son. You are out.
0: And here he is meeting another angry resident who wants to talk about more support for the rural fire service. Uh, how are you? I'm only shaking your hand if you give more funding to our RFS. Prime Minister shaking a woman's hand and then walking away, as she continued to talk about the help her community needs.
2: Alex Kelly lives on Rurong Country, just outside of Melbourne. And during the bushfires, she felt that she needed to do something.
3: Partly because of my own situation of having a small child and realising I couldn't do massive projects. Over the summer, while thinking about the bushfires, I decided to kind of try and do something that was immediate scale, um, walking distance from me. And there's a small hall in a um, little park a couple of blocks away from me called the West End Hall in Castlemaine. And I uh, decided that um, I would be interested in trying to get together a few people um, from the neighbourhood to talk about community resilience. And it was partly inspired by the fires, but also climate change more broadly. And so we, um, this, and this also emerged out of a kind of neighbourly Sunday afternoon, neighbourly drink. So we were all enjoying getting to know each other, meeting each other on the street.
2: Alex's organising may have been hyperlocal, but mutual aid was happening everywhere.
3: There's been a vast amount of um, conversations, a lot of them happening through Facebook. Um, Very quickly across the continent, different people started to compile shared open Google Docs with databases of information. Some of that material initially was coming out of the United States where there's quite a body of work around this. There's a network um, called the Mutual Aid Disaster Network in the US which is quite rooted in kind of an anarchist and um, very autonomous sensibility and it emerged after Hurricane Katrina. We had had conversations with people involved in those networks in the US and were looking at a lot of their materials and very quickly um, a lot of those materials were being shared around and then repurposed.
2: Crisis started to generate the spread of mutual aid strategies and tools around the globe. Like Ellie and Liz Alex's work around the pandemic was strengthened by the fact that she had a pre-existing network of people she could engage.
3: So as soon as I realised this um, pandemic was going to hit us here, um, I put out, uh, an email to that network and asked if people thought we should do another letterbox drop and reach out to that to, to the broader community around us um, so since then we've um, put out about 480 flyers which is sounds like a lot but it's interesting it's only three big long streets and then sort of six cross streets we've got a whatsapp group we've got a facebook group But importantly, we've set up a shared phone number for those in our community that don't use technology, you know, the internet, WhatsApp or Facebook. There's some people on the street who've organised a um, food drop on their doorstep. They've got an outdoor fridge and freezer and they're making a food exchange and, and making that known to the wider community as
2: well. We've already seen some food
3: shortages.
2: But the work of any mutual aid group isn't just in doing the work. It's about connecting as well.
3: Uh, we had a, a meeting for West End Resilience a couple of days ago on Zoom and more than half of that meeting was really just talking about how we felt and, you know, we were going to do a check-in in the meeting, a check-in round and then go into, like, some of our planning, but it became apparent the check-in round was actually just really critical and that contact and sharing of our fears and, you know, we were crying with each other on the Zoom call, and we've only all just met recently. Um, But it was so important.
2: This connection not only helps people to process the crisis, but as Ellie saw up in Lismore, it helps them to manage their own anxiety.
1: I've always thought for a very long time that, you know, the antidote to despair is action. Uh, So I think in these sorts of times, people are very motivated to to act and to, and to help.
2: If the world is facing a mental health crisis, as Professor Isaacs suggested at the beginning of this episode, then it is a tantalising prospect that the cure to despair is action. Like Ellie, Alex found that her earlier experience organising social movements helped her establish and run a powerful local group
3: people who are like myself who've spent decades engaged in social movements who are really um, got lots of strong uh, grounding in theory and practice and tools and lots of political analysis who are now getting involved with their neighbours in very just practical day-to-day projects. But I think we're going to see really interesting influences of conversations and ideas happening
2: through this one of the possibilities is how everyone can learn new ways of doing what they did before.
3: I am a very, have very limited understanding of neuroscience, but I understand that when your mind has a shock, it's a, the most malleable. You can create new neural pathways the most quickly at a time when you are struggling to understand things through your old frameworks, and I think the same goes for society. So this is a really frightening moment. That we're in. We have no idea what the free fall from this is going to be. But I think it's a time when people are most open to ideas.
2: But the transition won't be easy.
3: I think you hear this after every crisis, and I think Rebecca Solnit has written about it in Paradise Built in Hell, and even Naomi Klein talks about when she talks about the shock doctrine that people too can declare a crisis or respond differently in crisis. The usual rules don't apply.
2: Who defines what needs to happen after the crisis depends on how the story of the crisis is told. That story will shape the solutions that emerge. For instance, in Australia, are we toilet paper hoarders or do we care for our neighbour? We're being told that we're selfish, but then our actual
3: behaviour is telling a different story. So if enough people have a lived experience of generosity and care, that is different to the story that we're being told about selfishness, that becomes a rupture where you see the world differently because of your own lived experience.
2: The power of mutual aid doesn't just come from good deeds. Mutual aid shows that we can build a better world based on connection and love, not pure individualism and competition. It tells a powerful story of the world that we need to create coming out of this crisis a society that invests in relationships, that makes time for each other. But in trying to create social connection, we will have to battle hard with those who have benefited from the world as it was. The last crisis, the global financial crisis of 2008, didn't weaken neoliberal capitalism. Instead, it became an excuse for expanding it through the politics of austerity. Relationships are important, But on their own, they won't be enough to create a new way of being. Relationships need to combine with power, a massive transformative energy spread across institutions, cities, countries and the world, directed at the decision makers in the economy and in the state. So is there hope for audacious political change in this moment? Well, let me introduce you to our third story. While the history of pandemics makes us shudder, the history of economic crises isn't quite as dark. You can look back to the Great Depression to find the birth of Keynesian economics and a recognition that the state has a responsibility to intervene and make the economy fairer. In the United States, Roosevelt developed the New Deal, which helped workers fight for wages and created social security. Globally, the welfare state with its provision of free schools and universal healthcare was a legacy of that economic crisis. But there is no guarantee that economic crisis leads to greater equality. Daniel Alanda Cohen is a sociology professor at the University of Pennsylvania and the co-author of the book, Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal.
6: When I think back, to 2008-2009, that was the last really big crisis, and and that crisis went on for much longer than those years. But the really big financial crash was a moment when, I think around the world, people said, the system is so fragile, we have to do something. And I think that when you look back, that didn't happen. But we didn't really make the case, and we didn't really mobilize, and we didn't get that much out of that stimulus. And in fact, for most people, things haven't gotten much better in 10 years. For Daniel, the
2: failures of the 2008 financial crisis provide a stark lesson for today.
6: And I think a couple of things that have have changed now compared to where we were before is we're like, you know what, we're not just going to settle for a few hundred billion dollars in the United States. We have to fight for the absolute maximum amount that we're going to spend to kind of lift people up, lift up workers, lift up communities.
2: The politics of social connection that Alex and Ellie described earlier can only disrupt business as usual if they also manifest as big changes to how our economy works, how our state works, and how we all work together.
6: Mutual aid is essential. We have to take care of each other, and I think that any political effort to tackle really big crises has to be rooted in, I think, not just values of solidarity, but the experience of solidarity. That being said, it's not enough, actually, to see mutual aid, I think, as the model for how we get through this crisis all on its own. I was in New York City after Hurricane Sandy. I studied the aftermath of it, and there was extraordinary upsurge of sort of community self-help and help of others. The problem is that 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 coming together tends to dissolve with time, and especially as the immediate problems are solved.
2: Mutual aid organisers like Alex are fully aware of that tension. The trick is going to be scaling
3: that from these small food swaps and medicine runs for older people or checking in and transport support, etc., through this crisis into what that looks like systemically as we rebuild.
2: But there is an added layer to this moment. We don't just have a health crisis and an economic crisis. We have a climate crisis. It means that the economic and health solutions we identify have to literally change business as usual forever. We can't pump prime ourselves back to the old carbon intensive economy that was killing us.
6: What we need to do, I think, in our view, and I've come together around this plan called Green Stimulus with uh, 10 other people who are sort of wonks or academics or, or policy advocates from you know, different sectors, from a marine biologist who works on oceans to you know, a a law professor who works fundamentally with labor unions on on just transition issues. And what we wanted to put on the table is an agenda of uh, rebooting the economy fundamentally rooted in ways that will help the climate by decarbonizing, by making people safe from extreme weather disasters, and bring jobs and investment to workers and to communities of color, indigenous communities, and, and working class communities.
2: The green stimulus has a big vision, but what's making it work is that it's really specific
6: too. And we've done some polling in the U.S., for instance. And if you say, do you support a $2 trillion green stimulus? A majority says yes, but the Democrats say yes, the Republicans say no, they don't support this. But if you get down a bit more specific, do you support investments in electric buses? Do you support investments in retrofits of low-income homes? Um, do you support investments in renewable energy or in a smart grid to make it easier to sell energy uh, from solar panels back to the grid? Um, and there's a few other examples of these concrete policies, not only is the support extremely high, but even the majority of Republicans support these things. So I think one of the things we're trying to do right now in a very tense political moment is say, we are going to have to rebuild from this crisis. When you drill down into the details of what it means to do a green stimulus, that's actually really exciting to people.
2: So often, action on climate change is seen as too hard Up until now, climate change has been seen as a problem at loggerheads with economic prosperity. But in the aftermath of this pandemic, bold, stimulatory action on climate change is the solution to the economic crisis. This moment could reframe the climate debate. But it goes further. This is a moment where we can learn from the health crisis as well. We've all learnt the language of flattening the curve, reducing the spread of something sooner is radically more successful than letting it grow exponentially and get out of control. That metaphor applies to climate change. We need to flatten the curve of carbon emissions and just like the virus, flattening the carbon curve will save lives. But strategy isn't just about coming up with big ideas it also means building a powerful movement for change with clear targets in mind.
6: We're going to have to build a really big coalition around it that I think takes grassroots movement seriously and takes the state seriously. And this is what's so important about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and the other generation of lawmakers who've gotten in and her generation around the same time and of seeing the project of social movement organizing and progressive political action from the, from the state, from the government, as being one and the same thing.
2: These strategic questions are being debated across the world right now, and not only by progressives. The role of the state is central as each nation works out who it will bail out and how. Nation states are debating different approaches to lockdown. Some focus on the elimination of the virus. Others argue to lift the ban based on economic revival. What will happen to our liberties, like freedom of assembly as lockdowns lift? Does the state step back freely? Or do we retain an authoritarian turn? Daniel makes the case that those who care about justice and climate need to be making arguments about the role of the state, lest we lose like in 2008. And at the same time, the insights of Alex, Ellie, and the politics of mutual aid can feed our imagination here too. Just like we don't want business as usual, We don't want the state as usual either. A benevolent power over state can suck agency and meaning from those who need help. And usefully, the kind of local practice that Alex and others exemplify speaks to a kinder, more connected state practice. This is really clear for Alex.
3: I think this is a moment where we really need to be listening to people who work on disability and access issues because a lot of the challenges that we're going to be facing, as a, broadly speaking, are challenges that they've been facing for a long time and have a lot of expertise in.
2: Listening and connection doesn't start and end at the hyperlocal. Our big policy demands need to also transform how the state does its work, not simply what it funds. This is a big moment.
6: I think the concept of the possible is really changing. If we look out into the future and thought, you know, in 10, 20, 30 years, we're going to face a real fork in the road between barbarism and some kind of humane alternative. I feel like that fork is coming way, way sooner than we expected. And I personally find that terrifying. At the same time, as I've been saying, I think the options for really progressive policies are also far more tangible than they've ever been. So it's an extremely exciting moment. Uh, We have movements stronger than we've ever had them. We have arguments that are better. We have more charismatic, compelling politicians that we can really um, hold accountable. And at the same time, we face this nightmarish situation. So it just feels like every single day is kind of part of this epic struggle now that will define the decades ahead. I don't know if that feels good or it feels bad, but I think it's important to recognize that that's where we are and to find a way to To make this moment count.
2: The time of crisis is the age of the changemaker. For in this moment, more than any other in living memory, let's make it count. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. This is series four, so there's plenty to be inspired by in our back catalogue. Changemakers is produced by Ben Keating. This episode includes interviews conducted by Mark Isaacs and Amanda Tattersall. It is written by Amanda Tattersall and edited by Charles Ferg. Our audio producer is Jules Wookera. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project funded by the Halloran Trust based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our trainings. We have designed some free Changemaker trainings just for pandemic times. They are weekly and fun and designed to help people think and make change. You can find out more on our website.